came to you with my heart in pieces and found the God with healing in his hand. I turned to you, put everything behind me and found the God who makes all things new. I look to you, drowning in my questions, and found the God who holds all wisdom. And I trusted you and stepped out on the ocean. You caught my hand among the waves, cause you're the God of all my days. from you and wandered in the shadows and found a God
after next Sunday about what comes next. If you are part of the Carpenter's Way family or you want to be and you don't have a Bible study, if you would please email me or message me, we will have a Bible study group contact you so that you can be actively involved in body life. This isn't enough. It isn't enough to watch. You need to be prayed for and to be praying for others and ministering. And we're going to do that through our Bible studies. And if you used to be a member of a Bible study, you've never been part of one, if you will just message me, if you're on Facebook right now, you can click and, and, and message our church or email me at mark, M-A-R-K, at symbol C-W-B-C.org. I will have a Bible study leader or person contact you and invite you into their gathering. So that's kind of where we are right now. I hope that makes sense. If you have any concerns, I know that you want to be back together, and I know you're frustrated. We will soon enough. We just don't want to stop and start, and, and, and we're just trying to be wise of how to use our space and how do we minister to our flock. So that's kind of where we're at. Again, Bible study meters, we're, leaders, we're going to meet next week. Uh, so let's, let's turn our face away from the business of church, and let's go back to Jesus, because that's, that's why we gather. I am going to pray for us in a moment. I want to remind you, commit yourself to being involved, praying for each other, taking care of each other, communicating with your Bible study, going, if you're Zooming Bible study discussions, being involved in those, and I know some are not, and in the next couple of weeks, pay attention, because I think some of your groups are going to gather in small group settings that are, allow social distancing and safety and all that, so be paying attention. Continue your giving as we want to continue to celebrate our missionaries and support them. I don't know if some of you saw on our Facebook page, but Cassidy Everling, she adopted a child this last week, and that was all finished. So that's super exciting. Be praying for our missionaries. This is not an American problem. This is an international thing going on, so be in prayer. So I'm going to commit our time to the Lord, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Chad and, and the worship team, and uh, then we'll get into the Word. It's going to be a great time this morning. So, Father, we thank you that we can gather even over the internet and, and we can pray and sing and, and celebrate you and get into your word. And Father, I ask you this morning to continue to bless our church, continue to bless the people that involve themselves in it. And I am, I am surely aware that there are people out there who know you and walk with you and need to be encouraged. Then there's those who know you but have never followed you. May today be the day of their salvation. And then there's those who don't know who you are. They, they know about you, and they're just discovering, and this is a safe way to do that. May we introduce them to you today, Father. Uh, but wherever we are spiritually, would you feed our souls? Would you encourage our souls? And uh, most of all, would you help us fall in love with you just a little bit more? So take what's about to happen from the worship to the preaching and use it for your glory, Father. May your Holy Spirit reign in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I am not skilled to understand what God is will, what God is planned. I only know at His right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take Him at His word. Christ died to save me, this I read. And in my heart I find the need. 
for him to be my savior that he would leave his place on high and come for sinful men to die you count it straight so once did I before I knew my savior my savior loves Salvation comes from Him. He is. 
Oh 
one's rest in God alone. Salvation comes from Him. He is my rock, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Amen. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So listen to this. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Yes. 
telling you every week. I tell you, the, the only thing Sunday morning you're really missing, besides just each other, but it's hearing this worship. I, that is an awesome song. And uh, this, really, this really is a good precursor to what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, when we sing about the sovereignty of God, I think it, I think it brings all of us as God's kids comfort um, to know that he's sovereign, like in the pandemic. At least God's in charge. Um, but I do think that all of us, yeah, it's all of us. All of us struggle with God being in charge of the areas of our life that we do not feel is chaotic. In other words, we want God sovereign in our lives in the areas that are out of our control. But I, I, I'm not convinced I, and I should only speak for myself here, I'm not convinced that I'm really good at trusting him in the areas that I think I'm in control of. I, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But we're going to get into that today because I think we talk about the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God and, and us trusting in Him only when we don't think we have it. And that makes walking faithfully and being a faithful follower of Christ, um, well, much like the Pharisees, to be honest with you. Um, let, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. Father God, thank you. Thank you for music. Oh, man. Thank you for our, our musicians and, man, their voices and the instruments and the focus of these words, the authors of these songs. God, you are holy, but, uh, and you are worthy of, of control to unroll the scrolls of the end of time. But really, we only think about the end of times when things aren't going the way we want them to, as if the end of time isn't near when they're going the way we think they should. Uh, Father God, you are sovereign over the good and the bad days. You are sovereign over the good and the bad weather. You are sovereign over pandemics or great health. You are sovereign. We just uh, have a, a false sense of security at times when we're doing okay. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would understand just a little bit more what it means to put our hope and our trust in you and be a follower of yours. So I commit this time to you. Uh, I ask, as always, that the words of Mark would fade away so the words of God would endure forever. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is omnipresent and he is in the hearts and lives of your children and he precedes everything and everyone and even in the homes of those who do not know you today that today they can hear from him. Lord Jesus, speak to us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 14 uh, tells a story. Uh, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the house of a leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. Right? So pay attention to that. He's having, ha having dinner at a Pharisee's house, and they're watching him. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and he healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and he said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? I mean, if your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, and he gave them this advice. So let me pause for a second, and let me help you understand that they're at a Sabbath meal, and I'm going to repeat this, but, but as I read through it, I want you to understand the context of this. 
when a Pharisee, especially the leader of a Pharisee, would invite people over for a Sabbath meal, it was quite an honor to be invited. And only those guests of honor would even be seated at the table, but in the exterior of the room, maybe the walls, somebody could stand around the exterior and actually watch this meal going on. You may not be aware of that, but that's why the women, on two occasions, they anoint Jesus' feet. They weren't invited to eat at the table. They were those that were allowed to watch as these religious leaders and Jesus had interaction. And, and those women lost their, their minds and ran to the table. They were not invited to speak even, but they had lost their brains at that moment or, or what was culturally acceptable. So in this scenario, you have a man who wouldn't have been invited because he had a skin disorder and the Jews were committed to the Mosaic law and they would not have allowed this person to sit there. But Jesus notices him. So Jesus, who is seated at this table, actually invites this, this sick man in. Uh, and then now, when they're sitting there, Jesus is watching these Pharisees argue, uh, wrestle for the seat of honor at the table, and he teaches them this. So he gave them this advice, verse 8. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, hey, give this person your seat, and then you'll be embarrassed. And you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will, say, come, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. And he said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who couldn't repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. I'll tell you why I'm laughing in a moment. Jesus replied with a story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But, when they, all began, but, but they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and I, I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I can't go. The servant returned and he told the master what they had said. And the master was furious and he said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So the master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I invited first will, will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. So some context is important here because um, this text I just read, and it isn't all of Luke 14, we're actually going to get to the end of it later, but I, I want to point out that each of these sections are actually preached usually individually, as if preach Jesus is actually telling you how, where to sit at a, at a wedding feast, or who to invite to dinner, or the position of humility, or having a debate on whether it's really okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't having that conversation. He was setting up for a bigger conversation that involves the story of the wedding feast. Luke 14 is a really amazing look at one of the final days of Jesus' ministry. I, I want to remind you 
how within the last couple months of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, that, that Jesus has emphasized two things. Number one, he wants to train the disciples the values of the upside-down kingdom and the truths of it, where royals serve those that are not royal, so that when he's gone, they pick up his baton and serve the way he serves. The second thing is to the lost, he is proclaiming himself as the only way to the Father and into the kingdom. To the best of our knowledge, Jesus has actually, by this point, presented himself in Jerusalem, in the temple area, for the last time before Passion Week. We're about probably a month and a half to two months out from that week. Passion Week starts with the triumphal entry, and then Jesus goes right into the temple area, and he turns over the tables, and then he offers himself again as the Lamb of God, and that that prepares the week where they'll arrest him and kill him. But this is the final time we believe that Jesus is actually presenting himself in the temple area, or has, he has done that for the last time. He is now spreading his ministry throughout the rest of what we know as the Holy Land, offering himself to the lost, trying to disciple the disciples. And it's during that time that a lot of teaching the Gospels tell us take place. For instance, as I just, as I just showed you, he teaches on humility. He talks about the kingdom of heaven and his return. He uses a, a, a lot of parables during this time and famous ones that you're familiar with. It is during these last couple months that he, pre, he, he tells the parable of the fig tree, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son is told during this series, and as you saw here, the wedding feast and many others that aren't so famous, but there's a lot of the parables are taught during this. This morning, this morning's text does two things. It speaks to the lost that think they're found, the Pharisees, as well as the disciples are watching in. Jesus is enjoying Sabbath dinner at a leader of the Pharisees' home. The disciples are there. Lots of Pharisees and religious leaders are there. And around the edges are people that wouldn't have been invited to dinner, but culture said had to be allowed in the home under the guise of hospitality. The Pharisees, ironically, in this story, aren't trying to arrest Jesus or kill him. In fact, they seem to be nice with him, playing nice with him. They seem to be friendly towards him, enjoying their time together, when Jesus, as usual, ruins the mojo at the table by giving lessons in value. And his values were not their values. He instructs them on being humble where you sit, when you go to a wedding feast, who to invite to dinner. He asks them if they work on the Sabbath, then tells them that he knows they do, despite the fact that the Pharisees have been critical of his ministry since he started his ministry by healing a man at the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. As I said, these people are very friendly towards him. But his lessons, his lessons to them, his instructions, his value training actually are on point for these men because humility and serving others was not something the Pharisees were known for doing. They demanded respect and the service of others because of their position in Judaism. In defense of the Pharisees, though, the disciples were not all that inclined towards serving and reaching out to others as well. You will remember that in the upper room, as they're walking towards the upper room, the disciples are debating among themselves as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. 
they actually asked, two disciples, one asked if he could sit on the right, and one asked if they could sit on the left of Jesus. Those are positions of honor. And the disciple, the other disciples, it says in the scripture, and we'll get to here in a few months, but the other disciples actually get mad when they realize that these two disciples and their mother asked first, they hadn't thought of it in time. The disciples were told regularly to minister and serve others, especially those that they don't like or those they look down on, from Samaritans to others. Jesus' teaching on not taking the lead seat in this text and inviting those to dinner who could not repay, uh, could repay them left all of them at the table speechless, even uncomfortable. And I have the feeling that there was awkward quiet. Remember, I laughed before, and the reason I laughed is this. It tells us at the beginning of this story that they are all sitting around at the table and in this room, and Jesus begins quizzing them on what's allowed and not allowed as, it, as fully knowing that he's ministered. And you notice in that that nobody answered him. This is one of the few times the Pharisees don't speak against him. They're making nice. And then he talks to them about where they seat at the table, and it says they remain quiet. And then he talks to the host, and he tells him who to invite to dinner. And it tells us they remained quiet. And I think, well, verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me within that context. Hearing all of this, what has he heard? Who to invite to dinner? Uh, where to sit at, the, at a, at a uh, wedding feast? Uh, when it's okay and not okay to work? Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's called a subject change. What is happening here in my thinking is that this guy doesn't want to fight with Jesus. None of them do. It's awkwardly quiet. Jesus keeps poking the bear, waiting for them to respond. And this guy brings up something that he thinks they can all agree on. Won't it be wonderful when we all get to heaven and get to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb? Again, Jesus actually wasn't causing trouble. He was on message. He was teaching something bigger than banquet etiquette. He wanted to point out something that they needed to understand. And so he makes this famous parable of the feast the point. Jesus replied with the story. I'm going to read it again. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready... He sent his servants to all the guests. Another text says, to his honored guests. Come, the banquet is ready, he said. But they all began making excuses. I bought a field and I have to inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've bought five pairs of oxen. I want to try them out. Excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. And his master was furious. And he said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Remember that around this table, as Jesus is telling this story, are religious leaders, and he's in the home of the leader of the Pharisees for this community. In other words, they had to be going, invite the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. They're the sinners. These religious leaders believe that if you got sick, especially these kind of sicknesses, <coughs> excuse me, that it was the result of your sin. I remind you to three weeks ago when we studied that Jesus healing the man who had been blind from birth. I want you to remember that the disciples, his disciples started that whole series with a question. Is this man blind because of his sin or his parents? They couldn't even fathom that blindness was a result of somebody's sin. For Jesus to tell them, to instruct them, 
to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, was in, instructing them to invite sinful people, lesser than them. After the servant had done this, he reported to the, to the uh, person throwing the party, there's still room for more, 22 says. Verse 23, so his master said, now go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. Now he's telling him to go beyond the Jews, going beyond their community, and you go out into anywhere and you invite anyone. For none of those I first invited will, even, will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. You think it was quiet at dinner when Jesus brought up humility? Can you imagine the mojo of the room right now? He just told them to invite everybody they wouldn't even think of walking by and talking to on the street. The Pharisee had just changed the subject to try to make nice with Jesus so that they could all enjoy a nice Sabbath meal, so they could all sit at the table. And what does Jesus do? He takes a knife and puts it right into the heart of their arrogance. The ironic part is I think they knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was a Jew. This parable to the Jews was rooted in Judaism. He had never rejected Judaism, Christ hadn't. He simply pointed out its weaknesses, and they had he had come to close the holes by dying on the cross. He came not just to cover sin temporarily like the Jewish law did, but actually to remove it. Remember, John the Baptist said that about him. He came to save people, something no religion, including Judaism, could do. And his invitation started with the Jews, and they made every excuse in the book not to accept. And so the invitation would now be made far and wide to anyone and everyone who wanted forgiveness from sin and a relationship with God. And Jesus had already been modeling that by healing the lame and making the blind to see and actually at the table by healing this man who, whose body's inflamed, Jesus is making a point that he will touch them, he will heal them, he will minister to them. In fact, Jesus will tell the disciples at his ascension to go to all the world and make disciples. I'm going to sneeze. Excuse me. He's going to tell them to go. And, I, and if you remember, if you've been with us our study whole time, you remember way back when I pointed out that a year and a half into the ministry, Jesus' uh, Jesus' ministry, Jesus actually instructed the Jews, to uh, the disciples, to only go to the Jews. Soon he would tell them to go into all the world. Now, the Apostle John actually laid an outline of Jesus' ministry in the first chapter of John. And it reads exactly like this parable. Look at it with me. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. God created everything through Him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the Creator, so that's how we know who He's talking about. And nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe in his testimony. John himself wasn't the light. He is simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created. I am sorry. Uh, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all, 
That's Jews and non-Jews alike. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. I want to remind you that in the story of the parable of the wedding feast, the servant goes and invites the honored guests, and they make excuses just like the Jews do. Then he goes outside of that Jewish community to behind the hedges to the people that weren't acceptable. And then he tells the servant to go everywhere and invite everyone in. That's the story of Jesus Christ offering salvation. You might be saying, well, how do we know that the Pharisees understood that this was about them? How do we know that they just simply misunderstood Jesus? That they thought they were confused about this true identity? I mean, these people are being nice to him. Ready for a shock? Look at this verse in John chapter 12, verse 42. There it is. Many people did believe in Jesus. However, including some of the Jewish leaders, my inflection was wrong on that. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. But they wouldn't admit it. Why? For fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. Verse 43 tells us their value system. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. I want that to sink in. This is a thing where people who know Jesus, or at least who he is, but the cost of following him is too high personally. So, like the Pharisees at this table who befriend Jesus but do not follow him, these, true, these Jews and some Christians try to live out life, their spiritual life, with one foot in the Jewish world and one foot, well, as a friend of Jesus. And I know what some of you might be thinking. I've had somebody tell me this week, you have preached freedom in Christ, but you seem to also teach that there's a standard. Isn't it good enough to be a friend of Jesus without rocking the boat? I'm going to let Jesus answer that question in the very next verse of Luke 14. Again, one of the weaknesses of modern-day teaching and preaching is that we lose the context of the story. And the context is huge to learn why Jesus tells a parable about a wedding feast. Why did Jesus start this whole meal by healing a guy at the table? Why does he ask the Pharisees if it's okay to heal on the Sabbath? Why does he, why does he instruct the, the host of this dinner to actually invite different people? Why does he, he look at the Pharisees and instruct them where to sit at a wedding feast? Why, as a result of a man making a comment that everybody could agree with, won't it be wonderful to eat at a, the banquet feast in heaven, something they all could have high-fived each other and had a, a pleasant dinner, why does Jesus then tell the story of this wedding? The answer is found in the very next verse, Luke 14, 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. So these are followers of Jesus, people who say they're followers. Take that in. A large crowd was following Jesus. Who are you following? Well, we're following Jesus. Why are you following Jesus? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to see him do miracles. I want to hear him teach. I love his parables. I love all that stuff. A large crowd was following Jesus. When he turned around and he said to them, 
if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, your wife, children, brothers and sisters, yep, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now again, I want to take a breath here. I want you to pay attention. He's talking to followers, not necessarily saved people, but people who would think they're saved, people who would consider themselves as followers. Jesus turns to them as they're following, and he tells them, you're not following enough. If you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. But don't begin following me or being my disciple until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers <coughs> marching against him? And if he can't, He'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still follow, far away. So, verse 33, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. That's not Mark's teaching. That's not Beth Moore's teaching. That's not John MacArthur's teaching or Passion's teaching or whatever. That's Jesus. The problem with this text is it makes sense. It actually is clear. We've been studying for over a year now who is Jesus from the gospel. And the truth is we have loved his rejection of religion and his passion for a relationship with us, him towards us. We have loved watching him stick it to the Pharisees and love on the Samaritans. We have loved watching Jesus heal the blind, the lame, and even raise the dead. We have celebrated as he calmed the seas and the nerves of the disciples. We love this Jesus. But we often, like the Pharisees at the table, try and ignore or change the subject about the cost of being a follower or disciple of Jesus, which is very, very high. I don't know, maybe, maybe we can sit around and discuss whether or not you can be saved and not be a disciple. But you're betting your eternity on it. You see, Jesus is actually running these people off. Most of them leave after he teaches this. It tells us that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. But only 120 are in the room, upper room in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Maybe those ever, other few thousand people are out somewhere else, but they were worshiping on Sunday. Maybe they were doing a video venue like we are. But there were only 120 after ministering to thousands. Jesus' teaching was wonderful and difficult. After feeding the 5,000, I want to remind you that Jesus actually fed them and then went away and then the next morning they find him again and they ask him to produce more food and he says 
no, you need the food you really need is to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it tells us in the text that they start talking to each other, saying that his teachings are too hard. Who can do it? And it says that they actually left him that day. The disciples get upset because the crowds leave. Jesus asks the disciples, are you going to go too? And they respond by saying no. And Jesus asks why. And they say, where else will we find eternal life? You see, the difference between the disciple and the mass is the disciple knows who he is and who Jesus is. The follower just wants good things. I want food, health care, healing when I want it. I want to be safe from the pandemic. I want, I want God to be available to me when I'm in a personal crisis. But giving up adultery and pornography and selfishness and, I don't know, comfort, I'm not going to do that. God doesn't expect me. Can you say that after reading this text? I mean, it says what it says. We love Jesus, but often like the Pharisees at the table, we want one foot in our own world that makes us comfortable and one foot in His. When Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And then in verse 33, it's as clear as day. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. At times we say, what are you talking about, Jesus? What does that mean? Surely there's some Greek explanation for it when we really do know what he's talking about. It's just that we don't want to give everything up for him because we don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue like the Jews or considered a zealot like John the Baptizer or a freak because we actually believe what the Scripture teaches. The cost of self-pleasure and self-promotion, personal reliability and security and comfort, the cost, of, the cost of being a disciple means I've got to follow Jesus even off the cliff, like Stephen who was stoned to death for teaching Sunday school. And so we dialogue about how free grace is, and it's true, grace is free, but Jesus didn't save you to keep you out of hell. He saved you so that he could be your father and you would join the family business. We were saved according to Ephesians 2.10 and made the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus so that we could perform things that he asked us to do. Salvation is absolutely free. Grace is free. But it will cost you your life. Because your life isn't your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer even live. I had someone recently say to me, you preach freedom in Christ, free salvation, but then you preach like there's a standard of following him. There is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, walk worthy of your calling. Julie and I have been talking a lot about this this last week, and, and, and we'll do, we're going to do a, a devotion on it this week, but I think kind of what's happened, and this is just my opinion, 
But I think kind of what's happened is since the 1800s when, when evangelists were traveling the country, even up to Billy Graham, and they, they've done wonderful work, and I, I revere these men and I'm thankful for their ministry, but the discussion became, became encapsulated in a question of hell like we've talked about before. You don't want to go to hell, do you? To which the crowds go, no, I don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. But we never get to following Jesus. Jesus is the answer to you not going to hell. The problem is hell isn't the problem, it's a location. The problem is sin. We have forgotten who we are without Christ. Depraved, hopeless, futureless sinners. Jesus resurrected us into new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you realize that, I don't, I don't know if this story is true or not, but it has been told all over the place, and I'm sure you've heard it. The story is, uh, as the South was going through emancipation and slaves were being freed, Abraham Lincoln was in a slave market in the South somewhere. And the story is told that there was a young black girl that was being sold, and he bought her. And to make a long story and beautiful story short, he basically said to the young girl, he gave her her papers and he says, I have bought you, I now set you free. And she looked at Mr. Lincoln wondering what sordid things he had planned for her. And she said, I have no idea what freedom is. And he says, it means you can go wherever you want to go, you can do whatever you want to do. And she looked at him and she said, I can go wherever I want to go, I can I can do whatever I want to do. And he said, yes, yes, young lady, you can. To which the story says, she looked at him and says, then I want to go with you because nobody has loved me like you have. I tell that story because I think a lot of us don't love Jesus. We love heaven. Like the Pharisees at this dinner, isn't it going to be wonderful to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, a banquet in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus says, yeah, but you're not going to make it. Because you're not following me. He had just said he was the gate. He had just said he is the good shepherd. Jesus will say, I am the way later in John 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. It doesn't say this is how you avoid hell. It says this is how you get to the Father, through me. You follow me. You're not earning your salvation. You're thankful for it. And we forgot ourselves. We've left our lane. We actually think we can do okay if we have the good job and a wonderful wife and beautiful, obedient children, when the reality is that was never our problem. Our problem is sin. And selfishness. And the Bible says anything not done in faith is sin. So when you live in your flesh, morally, you are sinning. And Jesus keeps pushing the bear because he wants them to be saved. He wants them to know he's invited them. And he doesn't want people following him thinking that they have a relationship with the Father when in fact they don't. 
If you think I'm making a lot of stuff up in this story, let me show you a passage you are terribly familiar with because it is in the Romans road and it is a passage every one of us go to when we think, how do I get saved? It's Romans chapter 10. Would you please in your living room read that first verse? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is a good guy to follow, that's not what it says. Lord, ruler, owner, person I follow, master of the house, my shepherd, the one I follow unquestionably. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, we always go to the second, just believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Believe that he saves you from your sin. But do you remember in James that it says even the demons know that and they're not saved. This verse tells us that there is a condition for salvation. It's not works, it's belief. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For those of you who've been saved for many, many years, and this is one of the conversations Julie and I had this week, you're going to go back to the old 1990s debate over lordship salvation. There isn't much controversy in Romans 10.9. I'm not saying that every part of your life that you don't know has to be given to him. That's what we do with every day of our life. But if you are choosing to only give hell to Jesus so he'll give you heaven, you haven't been saved from the problem, which is sin. If you openly declare, verse 9 says, that Jesus is Lord and, so there's two things, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. As the Scriptures tells us, anyone who trusts in him won't be disgraced. You see, the problem with the Jews was they believed that Jesus was from God. Do you remember that? I just read that passage. Actually, that wasn't new later in his ministry in life. Do you remember what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, early on in his ministry? He comes to Jesus. Nicodemus was called by Jesus the greatest Jewish leader and teacher of his time. He comes to Jesus, and his introduction is, good teacher, we know that you are from God because of the works that you do. Nicodemus, way back at the beginning, acknowledged that we, who are the we? All of the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the teachers, everybody he represented, we know you're from God. So we come to negotiate peace with you. That's why Nicodemus came. We talked about that at the beginning of our study. You don't negotiate with God. You give up. Unless you don't know your lane. I know this is tough, but this is why there were 120 in the upper room and not thousands. This is why people who loved the miracles walked away. And there's a big danger in the Bible Belt of creating God in our image, not ours in His. Of demanding that the only time we need Him is when we're struggling, when we need Him all the time. It is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and openly declaring your faith that you're saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. Trust in Him. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord. The same Lord. That word again. Who gives generously to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not of just Jesus or the Lamb, but the Lord. 
The concept of surrender is all through this. Jesus isn't making stuff up at the end of his ministry. He's not trying to squeeze more juice out of the Pharisees. He wants them to understand that if you don't follow me with everything, you get nothing from me. Everybody is trying to avoid hell. The question is, will we let the Lord Jesus Christ redeem us from it? There are few that honestly doubt Jesus, but there are only even fewer who will give up their lives and follow him. That's why that road is called narrow, and few are those who walk it. But Jesus was clear. Will you put Luke 14, 33 up there again for me, Louise? I know that's a little out of order. Put it on the screen. You can argue with me all day whether or not that means saved. Maybe you can, I can go to heaven but not be a disciple. Are you willing to bet eternity on that? There are some of us that are demanding our rights as American citizens. You're angry at the government for what they have done. And you're venting online. With no regard for the testimony of the kingdom. There are some of us who are committing adultery, but because we walked an aisle at 10 years of age, we feel like we're safe because the only thing we really want is heaven, not Jesus. A Christless salvation, is that a thing? Is it possible to be saved and not follow Jesus? A Jesusless salvation, that's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the Jews wanted. They wanted Judaism and their culture. And Jesus, when Jesus said, the culture of my kingdom is an upside-down one, where royals serve even their enemies. Jesus wasn't teaching about social justice. He was teaching us about eternal justice. Where you don't serve yourself, you follow him and serve others. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Pretty clear text. Pretty uncomfortable text. So here's where we'll leave it. If you don't know Jesus today and you're not saved, he invites you to be adopted in his family through the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross for you. But he just warns you that before you do that, count the cost. And the cost is following him. Salvation is free. You can't work for it. But after, it'll cost you your life. Child of God, brothers and sisters, Carpenter's Way folks, you following Jesus. Did you follow Jesus this last week? What rights are you demanding right now not to give up to Jesus? Men, are you serving your wives? You don't know my wife. Well, Jesus didn't say to serve your wife if we knew her and she was wonderful. Ladies, are you serving your husbands? Are you praying for them? He didn't say you do that if they're, if they're perfect. Why would you pray for them? Are you angry at our government? Why? Your citizenship is in heaven. You lose nothing but comfort. 
What are we doing? We should be the people going around without the masks on because death is better. I'm not suggesting that. We're the people that are people of hope, unless we lose our hope. Well, pastor, we live in a democracy, and, and we should be able to speak up. Yes, you should. And vote. But don't ever forget that your real citizenship is in heaven. Ask yourself what Jesus did. Ask yourself what he did. What would he do? What side would he be on? Is it worth it? Are you a Christian or a follower of Jesus? I don't think they're the same thing anymore. They're not. And there's going to be a lot of Christians in hell. Let's close in prayer. Lord, this text is tough, but it's clear. And so, Father, I pray that that your Holy Spirit would burn in our souls not a satisfaction in, in going to heaven, but a passion to follow Jesus while we wait to get there. May we never, ever stop following you so that we can feed our flesh. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. It's hard for me too. It's hard for me too. So pray. Think, reflect, get on your knees and surrender control of your life to the Lord. We love you. Uh, We miss you. There's like eight people in this room that didn't laugh at any of my jokes as well. Obviously, that's a a personal problem for me. Uh, But uh, man, if you need anything, if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you want to wrestle doctrine with me, um, get your Bible. Let's do it. Let's talk Jesus. I love you. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. The weather's going to be beautiful. See you soon, you guys. At a loss for words And the funny thing is It's okay The last thing I need